welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. Good morning. morning. Our sermon text this morning is from Ephesians chapter 4. I'll read verses 25 through the end of the chapter. These are the words of God. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another." tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the sharp sword that it is, for how it cuts down to the division between soul and spirit. Father, I pray that you would open our ears and our hearts to receive your word this morning, that we would not hold back from it, but that we would lean into the gospel truths that you have revealed to us And we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. There once was an old country preacher who was new to a church. And he came to this church and began preaching there for a few Sundays. And he was a a fiery gospel preacher. Preached on heaven and hell. And the people loved it every time after the service came up to him and thanked him for it. And as he got to know the people more and started to hear the troubles in the church... Um, he decided he needed to preach a slightly different sermon, so he preached one Sunday on chicken stealing. And after church, nobody talked to him. <clears throat> he met with his elders later in the week and asked what happened. And he said, well, we heard something about how you were preaching for the last few weeks, and then this Sunday you got to meddling. This, this is a meddling sermon. Scripture teaches that true belief leads to action. True belief leads to action. Our theology comes out our fingertips. Uh, Pastor Doug Wilson says that. Our theology comes out our fingertips. 
And since Paul has laid out the truths of the gospel that we need to believe in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, and since he has called on Christians, the very beginning of chapter 4, to walk worthy of their calling and to no longer walk with blind hearts, right in the middle of chapter 4, we should not be surprised that now, towards the end of chapter 4, the exhortations get very particular. I hope that stood out to you as you were listening to the reading. The exhortations here are very specific. Very particular. So what does it mean that we are to put off the old man? If you remember from a few weeks ago, when we were looking at this text last, at the end of the passage, uh, so this is in chapter 4, verse 21, 22, 23, and 24, this is what Paul says, "You You have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus." That you put off concerning the former conduct of the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says very clearly we are to put off one way of living and to put on another way of living. And we also talked about how in the one sense uh, this has already, been, uh, has already happened for us. We have died in Christ. If we have placed our faith in Jesus, if God has opened our eyes and given us new hearts and saved us and raised us from death to life, then we have died with Christ. Our old nature has died with him and we have been given a new nature. And yet at the same time, we all know that we still wrestle with sin. That the old man still clings to us. And so, what does it look like to truly put him off? To put off the old man, to put on the new man. In this particular passage here, Paul gets into very specific examples of this. And we'll see in each of these examples, Paul gives something that we are to put off, and then says what we are to put on, and then he gives another reason for why we put these things on. In this, we see a key to the way that Christians are to work out our salvation. How we work out in our lives what God is working in us. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2, that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But the reason that we are to work out our salvation is not because it's dependent upon us. It's because God is working in you to will and to do according to his own pleasure. God is working in you to do certain things, and you are to work those things out in your life. So what is God working in you to do? Well, Paul teaches us that what God is working in us is this habit, this pattern of putting off and putting on. Augustine prayed, Give what you command and command what you will. And that should be our prayer to God this morning, I think, as we come to this passage. Give what you command, God, and command what you will. God, command of me whatever you want, as long as you give me what you command. And Scripture teaches us that God will not ask of us anything that he does not also give us the means to accomplish. These commands that we are going to look at this morning are only possible to obey and to follow and to practice in Christ. Apart from Christ, these things are absolutely impossible. But in Christ, we truly can put off these sins, 
these habits, these things that cling to us, and we truly can put on the things that God has called us to. As we look at these uh, initial uh, verses here, one of the things that might strike you is um, an, it's maybe an odd selection of sins that Paul highlights. Look at verse uh, 25. Lying. Verse 26, anger. Verse 28, stealing. Verse 29, corrupt speech. I mean, come on, Paul, are these really big, big deals? Well, we, we say that of ourselves all the time. It's just a little lie. I get a little foul-mouthed sometimes. Yeah, I, I struggle, I, I wrestle with anger, but it's, it's really not a big deal. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't steal. I don't go to the grocery store and steal. I mean, I might be lazy at work some and steal from my employer, steal, steal his time, but I don't steal, steal. No, these, Paul doesn't address these things because they're not a big deal. He addresses these things because they are foundational, right? Actually, if we look later on, the beginning of chapter 5, that's where he starts getting into what we tend to think of as the big sins, right? Things like fornication, all uncleanness, different forms of, of rejecting God's standards and, and pursuing idolatrous things. Those are the big sins, right? Well, yeah, but where do those come from? They come from these things that we tend to write off as little sins, as, as, inconv- or as, as inconsequential, but they're not. In fact, we know that we're not, and we'll see this as we go through. Um, what Paul is referring to for several of these are some of the some of the foundational laws that God gave to his people, part of the Ten Commandments. God must think much of these things. So as we go through it, I'd like you to, to keep this in mind. In each example, as we look at these sins, note what Paul says must be put off. And note what Paul says should be put on instead. And then note also the reason that he gives from that. In each of these situations, the reason I think that Paul gives is derived from the fact that there is one body and one spirit. This is what Paul says at the beginning of chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. He said that we've been, um, we're to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called. We're to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace because, verse 4, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you all were called with one hope of your calling. One body, one spirit. All Christians are united by the spirit of God, by the blood of Jesus. And it's because of this that Paul then calls Christians to put off certain things and put on other things. So let's look at the first one here. Paul tells the Ephesians to put off lying. Lying is uh, not telling the truth. Lying is speaking falsehood. Uh, Paul, interestingly, quotes from Zechariah 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 16, after this initial exhortation. He says, put away lying. Then quoting from the prophet, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Uh, in the context in Zechariah, Zechariah is a prophet of uh, Judah during the time after the exile, when the, when the Jews have begun to come back to Israel, and they're beginning to reestablish Jerusalem. And one of the things that Zechariah is telling the people is, this is how you are to live as you come back into the land. And part of the reason for living this way is that 
the nations around you will see you. And one of the things that will mark out God's people is that they speak truth to one another. They don't lie to one another. And so as Christians, as people that, have, uh, that are converted sinners like the Jews returning from exile, we are to put off lying habits. And this is because Jesus is the truth. John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus is the truth, and his Father, and our Father, hates lies. Proverbs is full of, uh, of sayings of the things that the Lord hates. And often included in those are references to lies. In Revelation 21, we're told that some of those who are, who are cast into the lake of fire are liars. Those that practice lies. And this is, of course, this is how God views lying. He hates it. And this is opposed to the devil, who is the father of lies. Is your lie a little thing? Are you acting like your heavenly father? Are you acting like his son, who is the truth? Are you embracing him, or are you imitating another father? The devil is the father of lies since the beginning, Jesus tells us. But Jesus, the son, is the truth. Is your lie just a little, just a little lie? Just a little untruth? Again, this is one of the foundational commandments that God gave to his people. And in it, he forbids bearing false witness against one's neighbor. The commandment is in some ways more specific than this exhortation. I think Paul here is speaking more broadly than in the commandment. But the commandment actually teaches us something. We are not to bear false witness against our neighbor. This is right in line with the reason that Paul gives why we should put on speaking truth. He says that we are members of one another. To bear false witness against your neighbor is to defame your neighbor, to slander your neighbor to lie against him. And again, God is speaking particularly in the context of his people. If you are of the people of God, we don't bear false witness against one another. Why? Because we are one body. So we put on truth. We put off lies and we are to speak the truth because we are members of one body. Truth knits us together. And this, and this should stand out in Christian communities. Honesty, truth, that's what knits God's people together. And conversely, lies destroy families. Lies destroy churches. We are to not lie with those with whom we are supposed to be at peace. We have the peace of Christ. We have the unity of the Spirit. We're not to lie with those with whom we are at peace. And I think we can look at Scripture and we see plenty of examples of deception, of lying, occurring. But what's striking about those things, particularly when those instances are praised, it's in the context of warfare. Right? The Hebrew midwives, when God's people are, in, are enslaved in Egypt, they lie to Pharaoh about whether or not they are able to kill the newborn Israelites. And God blesses them for it. Why? Because Pharaoh had declared war 
on the men of Israel, on the male children of Israel. And so their lives, the midwives' lives, protecting life, God blessed it. That was not bearing false witness. That was lying for the sake of truth. Right? They are at war with Pharaoh. Rahab hides the spies. And in James, we're told that she is blessed for it. She's praised for it. She lied to the governing authorities to protect God's people because she herself had turned to Yahweh. But we are not to lie to those with whom we, are, we ought to be at peace. Who are those people with whom you ought to be at peace? Those people sitting right next to you. Where do most of our lies happen? In our families. Right? Kids, you're tempted to lie to your parents. You're tempted to lie to your parents to hide from them what you've done. And Paul says, put that off. Put off lying. Put on telling the truth. Why? Because you are to be at peace with your parents. You are to be at peace with those that God has placed you in a family with. But this actually, I think, uh, leads to another interesting application. In Psalm 85, we're told that mercy and truth have met. This is in, in Christ. Mercy and truth have met. So parents, I would ask you uh, to examine this. In your home, is there a lot of lying? Is there a lot of hiding things that are going on? And if so, one thing to consider is, have, do you have a home in which the mercy of God is evident? Because mercy and truth meet in Christ. If your home is full of lies, it might be that you have not displayed mercy. It might be that you have not uh, shown the mercy of God, demonstrated that to your children. Mercy and truth have met. Lies and mercy don't go together, actually. We lie because we want to hide, because we're afraid of justice. But mercy and truth have met. Truth knits us together, but lies destroy families and churches. One last uh, proverb, to, not from Scripture, but a, a proverbial saying to keep in mind is, um, is, is that a half-truth, we, like to, we tend to um, excuse half-truths all the time, right? partial truths. But a half-truth that is presented as the whole truth is an untruth. Right? A half-truth that is presented as the whole truth is a lie. And so what you cannot say is, well, I didn't lie because I told some of the truth. But if you presented it as giving the whole truth, it's no longer the truth. It's a lie. Half-truth presented as a whole truth is an untruth. So Paul says, put away lying, but let everyone speak truth with his neighbor. Next, Paul gives what seems to be a shocking command sometimes. Be angry. Preacher said it. Paul said it, right? Be angry. Positive command. Uh, Paul here is quoting from Psalm 4. Be angry and do not sin. Obviously, this implies that we are to put on a particular kind of anger. If in your anger you are sinning, that you are not obeying this command. Be angry and do not sin. So we must put on godly anger. 
how do we know what godly anger is? Well, we must study the scriptures to see what godly anger is. I'm not going to go into it in detail right now, but look through the scriptures and, and examine where does God express his anger? Where does it describe God's wrath? Where does it describe righteous anger of those who follow God? Godly anger is anger towards sin. First and foremost, our own. Uh, anger is an emotion, and like most emotions, it is not in and of itself sinful. What determines whether or not anger is sinful, what determines its moral quality, is the object and the manner of this emotion. We are to hate what God hates, and we are to love what He loves. And therefore, it is right and necessary to be angry at times. This is what Paul tells us to put on. We are to put on godly anger. But we are to put on godly anger at the expense of ungodly anger. We must take out the ungodly anger first. Anger is a potent and volatile thing. And so it must be very carefully wielded. James tells us in James 1 that we are to be slow to anger. Slow to wrath. Interestingly, in James, again, the scripture does not forbid anger, but it says be slow to it. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And uh, James goes on to say that it gives a reason for this. Why should we be slow to anger? Because the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So the wrath of man in his sin never accomplishes God's righteousness. This is so important because when are we tempted to get angry? When we see or perceive some sort of injustice. It might not be true injustice, but it's at least a perceived injustice. Someone has done something to you and you don't like it. That is a perceived injustice. And what is our natural tendency? It's to get angry. But James makes it very clear that that is, um, not aside from it being sinful, obviously, it's also very impractical. It doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't produce the righteousness of God. If your brother or your sister or your parents or your children are doing something that angers you, and you react in anger towards them, guess what? It's not going to help them stop that thing. It's not going to produce the righteousness that you apparently crave from them. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And because wrath, because anger is so volatile and so potent, Paul gives us a A very important warning. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. What does he mean by that? He says, don't go to bed angry. And this means that then we need to be putting off our anger, even our righteous anger, daily. What does it mean to... let's Let's say I am angry, and I'm angry with a righteous anger. Some of the things that might make you angry 
and ought to make you angry is the absolute horror of the abortion carnage in our country. You ought to be angry about this. But when you lay down to go to sleep, you must put it off. Because if you don't put it off, well, for back up for a moment, what does that anger accomplish in and of itself? Nothing. It will not produce the righteousness of God. Your anger at the abortion carnage will not produce the righteousness of God. That doesn't mean that it's wrong anger. It's a righteous anger. But what do we do with that righteous anger? We deliver it over to the one who can do something about it, to the one who judges the earth rightly. Jesus goes to the cross and undergoes the greatest injustice that this world has ever seen and he delivers himself over to the one who judges rightly, who is, to, to the God who says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And so even in your righteous anger, when you go to bed, give it over to the Father. Don't hang on to it overnight. And the reason that Paul gives for that is shocking. Verse 27. Do not give place to the devil. When you let anger simmer overnight, you're leaving your door unlocked. You're leaving the door of your heart unlocked. And the devil is a prowling, prowling lion seeking whom he may devour. Whatever righteousness was in your anger will be poisoned by mourning. No, Christians deliver their anger over to the one who judges rightly. And that's why in Psalm 127, it says that the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. If your anger is keeping you up at night, learn to give it over to the Lord. Practice that. Pray to him. Give it over to him because he gives to his beloved sleep. But unfortunately, I think this is not normally our problem. We normally are not wrestling primarily with our righteous anger. Usually we deal with our sinful anger. How do we deal with anger? Paul will actually get to this more in verse 31, so we'll come back to it. But just a couple things to consider. There are many passages in Scripture that deal with anger. It is, again, something that God does not treat with a, with a light, uh, doesn't give a light verdict over anger. In Galatians 5, uh, you're familiar with the list that Paul gives of the fruit of the Spirit. And contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit, Paul gives a list of the fruits of the flesh, the works of the flesh. And included in that list are those who give themselves to wrathful outbursts. And Paul says that those that practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is your, put it this way, do you have an anger problem? God does not treat it lightly. It is a serious offense to the Father when you are angered at those that He loves. It is a serious offense to the Father when you are angered at those that he loves. 
But again, mercy and truth have met. Our God is a God of mercy, and he's given us his word as a means to combat this. So I want to give you just two passages to consider. One of the best ways to fight the sin in your life, if this is a sin that does ensnare you, one of the best ways to fight it is to grab hold of Scripture and wield it and remind yourself of it when you're tempted to be angry, in the midst of your anger, when things are boiling on the inside and you can't think clearly. You need to have these passages memorized and hidden in your heart so that you can call them to mind. Proverbs 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Is there wrath coming at you? Is there unjust, injustice coming at you? Are you upset about the way things are going? Your harsh words, your angry words, will only fuel the fire. It will stir up more wrath. But a soft answer, self-control, turns it away dispels it. It diffuses it. Same chapter, Proverbs 15, verse 18. A wrathful man stirs up strife. It is so antithetical to the way that the church is described, the way that the church ought to be, the way that families ought to be. Participating in fellowship and enjoying the unity of the Spirit, the unity of the hope of our calling. A wrathful man stirs up strife. Here's the other half of it, though. He who is slow to anger allays contention. If you're quick to wrath, if you're quick to wrathful outbursts, to angry words, to angry language, to angry and angry countenance, all you do is stir up more strife. Because the, right, the wrath of man will not produce the righteousness of God. Instead, put on godly anger. Put on self-control and a patience that makes it so hard for you to get angry. Be slow to anger. This is not something that comes naturally to us. So first, put off lying. Be angry and do not sin. Third, Paul says, let him who stole steal no longer. Paul forbids stealing. Stealing is, of course, natural to the old man because if man does not serve God, he is ultimately serving himself. And so he grabs what he can. Right? This is natural to our sin nature. Stealing is unlawfully taking or keeping that which belongs to someone else. Uh, In the Old Testament, uh, we're told that if you find something of somebody else's and keep it unlawfully without seeking to return it, that's considered stealing. Stealing is keeping or taking anything unlawfully that belongs to someone else. So Paul here again is repeating the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Uh, Titus in chapter, Titus chapter 2, there's a couple other examples here. Uh, Paul gives an uh, exhortation to slaves. He says to slaves, do not pilfer or hold back that which belongs to your masters. 
Do not pilfer from your masters. I think, again, I mentioned uh, this as an example earlier, but I think a good application of this is for you in the workplace. Do you hold back from your employer? Do you hold back from him in such a way that would be unlawfully keeping what is not yours? If you have promised time and energy and promised things to your employer in a contract and you're wasting away those things, well, then I think the case could be made that you are stealing from your employer. Now, we can talk about all the ways in which our government steals from us and our employers steal from us as well, but I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to you. You don't need to be reminded of those things. Right? Don't pilfer or hold back. Um, I wrote this down in my notes this morning, so God uh, must think you all need to be reminded of this. Malachi chapter 3, that Luke mentioned during the offertory. Malachi chapter 3, the prophet says, uh, speaking, for, or speaking the voice of God, says uh, that you, God's saying to his people, you rob me. And the people ask, in what way do we rob you? And the Lord says, in your tithes and your offerings. Paul says, let him who, steal, who stole steal no longer. Well, do you steal from the Lord? Do you steal from the Lord? I think it's worth, it's worth considering, worth looking at your budget, worth looking at what God has given to you, and are you giving to him what he asks for, which is the first fruits. And to be honest, there's a good theological case to be made for where you give that money, but first and foremost, I don't care where you give your money. I want to know that you're giving it to the Lord. It's not about funding a particular church, although that's involved and there's a good study to be done there. But first and foremost, are, do you have a heart that is giving back to the Lord the first fruits of what he has given to you? And if not, that's an unthankful heart. That's an unthankful heart. The reason that we teach on this is not because we want to grow our bank account as a church. The reason we teach on this is because we care for your souls. And you could, for all we care, you could give to another church. We could have this. I'm speaking on behalf of the elders here. I'm not an elder here, but I'm speaking on behalf of them. Right? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. The point is not to fill our bank account. The point is, are you doing what God has called you to? And if you feel that I don't know how I'm going to make it to the end of the month, and so I'm going to hold back from giving to the Lord because I'm not sure I can make it, God has a, a very specific exhortation in Malachi chapter 3 for that. This is what God says. He says, try me in this. God begs his people to test him. He dares them. He says, try me in this and see if I do not open the floodgates of heaven upon you. What kind of a God do you serve? You don't serve a God that is taxing you and trying to squeeze every little bit out of you that he can. You're serving a God that has given you everything. You can't possibly outgive him. And he says, I dare you to try. I was talking with some other pastors recently, and, and the comment was made that they've had people come to them before asking this question I don't know how to, how to make tithing fit into my budget. And, and, and what the pastors did is they exhorted these people go ahead, tithe. 
and whatever else you need help with, come to the church and we'll help you with that. But first, do what God has called you to do. Begin with obedience. Lead with obedience. And almost never do people come back to the church needing to make ends meet. God supplies that lack. But you can't see that ahead of time. We walk by faith, not by sight. Uh, So Paul says, put off stealing, and instead, he says, we are to put on hard work. He says, rather let him labor, working with his hands, what is good. Good, hard work. The word for labor here means to toil or become weary. Your hard work should be wearisome. If you're complaining about how tired you are after work, you've missed the point. It's supposed to be that way. That's a gift from God, a protection from the Lord. Thievery is often downstream of laziness. But what's interesting here is that um, Paul is not exhorting people to steal no longer primarily for their own satisfaction of working hard or for their own uh, serving their own means. But rather, the reason he gives is that the one who works might have something to give to him who has need. Again, this is uh, related to, to tithing and giving our offerings to God, but also looking beyond that. Paul has in view the fact that we are one body. We are one body with one another, and we are a body that has needs. And so we ought to work with a view to give. Um, We receive from the Lord so that we can give away. You get so you can give. And again, try to outpace God in his giving. Finally, Paul forbids, in this particular section, Paul forbids rotten words. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. The word there for corrupt in the Greek um, is used to describe uh, the bad, rotten fish that are thrown overboard in uh, Matthew. Rotten fish. Paul forbids that kind of speaking. Uh, Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. James 3.2-12 describes how the tongue is, uh, is like a bridle. And it leads us. The tongue is like the rudder of a ship. The tongue is like a little bit of fire that engulfs an entire forest. The tongue is a powerful tool that God has given to us. And because of this, our speech matters. And this is, again, I think one of those places where we think, oh, it's just a little thing. Yeah, I'm foul mouth sometimes, but just when I'm out with my buddies. I'm, sh- I'm shocked sometimes to hear and to find out how often uh, couples are foul-mouthed to one another. The rotten speech that we use, that we might be tempted to use towards our spouse, is offensive to God. We must reject filthy language, corrupt speech, and as Calvin puts it, all those expressions which are wont to be employed for the purpose of inflaming lust. And this is not, of course, limited to some list of words somewhere. It is not that these, that, you know, bad language, 
having a foul mouth in and of itself, those words are evil. But words have meaning. All words mean something. And we serve a God who loves words because they all come from Him. He spoke and this world was created. Words really matter. Our expressions matter. The things we discuss matter. Do you discuss rotten things? Do you participate in rotten speech towards those that God loves? The answer is, of course, not to merely refrain from foul language. Rather, Christians should speak what is good for building up each other. We are to build one another up. Paul says, speak what is good for necessary edification. Like lying, foul language actually weakens your relationships. It destroys the bonds that hold a community together. But rather, faithful speech builds one another up and is part of how, what God uses to build us up into his holy temple. Remember that Paul has said that you are being built up into a holy temple in chapter 2. The people of God are being built up together into his holy temple. Well, here in chapter 3, or sorry, chapter 4, Paul's saying that part of your building up is the way in which you talk to one another. The way that Christians talk with each other is part of how God is building us up into his house. This, I think, also gives us another view as to, why, as to what Paul means by corrupt word. Any speech that is worthless or tears down should be cast out like so much stinking, rotten meat. We, uh, unfortunately, a couple weeks ago had a freezer fail that was full, I mean full, of meat. And it was several days before the necessary things were done. And, oh my goodness... Um, cleaning that out was a nightmare. And that's what your speech is like when you use foul, filthy language. I mean, can, you, you've smelled rotten meat before, right? I don't want anybody to get sick, but imagine that for a moment. That smell, it, it's like a thick smell. And that's what's in your mouth when you talk that way to those that God loves, to your husband, to your wife, to your children, to your friends, to your neighbors. That's, that's what you should taste as it's coming out of your mouth. Filthy talk is death talk. Filthy language is death language, but we have been given new life. Christians, you ought to talk like it. The reason for this that Paul gives is that it imparts grace to those who hear. Again, it's not primarily about you. It's about the people around you that you are one member, that you are one body with, that you are members of. It imparts grace to those who hear. Christians speaking faithfully encourages believers, those that you share this fellowship with, but it's also a means of imparting grace and drawing in unbelievers. 
some of you may, became, may have become uh, believers later in life, and you may have noticed that difference. You notice that difference between Christians and unbelievers simply in the way that they talk. And you may have noticed how when you became a Christian, the desire or even the ability to talk that way changed. Well, now you're a Christian. Do you talk that way? Do do you give yourself to speaking truth and life? Speaking the things that God loves instead of speaking the things that he hates? This is, again, one of those things that God uses to draw in unbelievers is faithful speaking. Paul sums up all of this, I think, in verse 30. Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If the Holy Spirit dwells in us and in, in and among us, if he's in you and in us as a body, then we participate in these things individually and corporately. If we're participating in lying and stealing and anger, ungodly anger and foul speech, if we're participating in these things individually or corporately, then the Spirit is grieved. The Holy Spirit is grieved at the way you talk, at the way you lie, at the way you get angry in a sinful manner, at your filthy talk. The Spirit is grieved. If we've been made new in Christ, then the Spirit abides in us and the guarantee, and He is the guarantee from God upon us. You were sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. It's God's down payment upon you that He will not turn back from what He has begun. That's part of what the Holy Spirit in you is. It's God's mark upon you, His down payment. And so what does God lose if He doesn't keep good on His word? He loses the Holy Spirit, which is one of the most absurd things ever to have come out of my mouth. Right? The Holy Spirit in you is God's guarantee that He will complete the work that He has begun in you. But this Holy Spirit is grieved when we give ourselves to these sins of the old man. This, these sins, this old man fruit and the fruit of the Spirit do not mix. They don't mix. You can't walk in the ways of sinner, sinners and walk in the way worthy of your calling. You've been called out from those things. You can't walk in the light and in the darkness. You're doing one or the other. The Spirit of God is the breath of life in Christ. It's the breath of our life in Christ. The Spirit, actually, in, in Greek and Hebrew, is the same word as breath or wind. So the Spirit in you is God's breath in you. It's the breath of life in you. It's the breath of your life in Christ. But when we indulge in the sins of the flesh, we are attempting to breathe death. We're attempting to go back to that old, dead nature. We're attempting to go back to that and breathe that dead, rotten air. Our sin and our stupidity in returning to these death practices grieves the Spirit. And when you stop and think about it, it really is absurd. It it really is stupid. Our sin, it really is stupid. I've been given new life. I've been given um, 
I've been given a wonderful feast in Christ. Fellowship and joy and singing and laughter. And I'd rather go and eat some dung out in the backyard. That's what returning to your sin is like. C.S. Lewis talks about it. It's like a a child that sits in um, wanting to make mud pies in a puddle rather than go have a vacation on the beach. That's what returning to your sin is like. That's what giving yourself back to these old practices is like. But no, you have not so learned Christ. So put these things off. We, are, we forget and we ignore the one to whom we belong. We forget and we ignore the blessings and the inheritance promised to us. And, and this is so important to understand, particularly when you think, oh, these sins, two, two different things. When you think, oh, these sins are so little, it doesn't really matter. No, when you're saying that to yourself, you're forgetting whose you are. You're forgetting the blessings and the promises that have been given to you. And secondly, this is important to remember when you think, yeah, I can't stop. I can't stop my mouth. I can't stop my anger. I try and I pray about it and then I get angry again. I can't stop lying. I do it even without thinking. Mom asks me what time I'll be home for dinner, and I lie to her for no reason. I just can't even help myself. Yeah, but you're forgetting to whom you belong. You belong to a God that came back from the dead. You belong to a God who rose from the dead. You think your sin is too big a problem for him to handle? No. We forget whose we are. And that's the, this is the stupidity of our sin. It is not as though the Spirit is grieved and so He leaves us on our own. No, rather, He is the one by whom we put off these sins. Paul says this in Romans eight thirteen. It is by the Spirit that we put off the deeds of the, of the flesh, by means of the Spirit. We may sense His grief. We may sense the Spirit's grieving over our sin. That's the, the Christian's conscience pricking Him. It's the Spirit talking to you. But this is God's grace in bringing us to repentance. The Spirit's grief is God's grace to you. The Spirit's grief is a blessing to you that you would know your sin and, be, and come back to the Father. Paul lays out one more contrast in this passage as we, as we come to close here. We must put away all malicious anger in all its varied forms, verses 31 and 32. Um, Again, remember that we are one body. We are all marked by the Spirit, by one Spirit, by the same Spirit. And so any bitterness or anger towards one another is antithetical to the gospel. Bitterness is that sour taste in your mouth, that sour feeling in your gut towards another person. That person walks in the room and you feel that in your gut. You immediately begin to slander them in your mind. You immediately begin to accuse them in your mind. And all you have to do is see them or think of them. And you can't help but point the finger, accuse. This is bitterness. Bitterness flares up into anger and wrath and clamor 
angry shouting, evil speaking. Evil speaking, uh, so we're in verse 31 here. Evil speaking is uh, the same word in Greek for blasphemy. Here, I think Paul is particularly talking about blasphemy or slander towards another person. We're to put these things away. We're to put these things away from us because they are antithetical to the gospel. As Christians, any bitterness, anger, wrath, clamor, evil speaking, and malice stems from forgetting or neglecting the forgiveness that we've been given in Christ. And so instead, we must put on kindness, tender hearts, and forgiveness. All of these things, bitterness, wrath, anger, slander, in general, these things come from a sense of being wronged, right? They come from a sense of being wronged. I've been wronged in some way by this other person. But we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. That's what Paul says here, the end of 32. Forgive one another even as God in Christ forgave you. When did he forgive you? First and foremost, he forgave you before you loved him. Right? He loved us and then we loved him. He forgave you of your sins when Jesus died on the cross. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, while we were without strength, even then Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Christians have been raised from death to life. There remains a sin in us that so easily ensnares us, but we need to not despair of this. There's a sin that ensnares us, that sin that remains in you. And so we cast it aside. We run the race doing the work that God has set before us. We run the race that God has set before us. This is a race that's fueled by faith. Faith that your sins, all of them, all of those injustices that you have done towards God, all of those breaking of God's commandments, all of that lying, that stealing, that wrath, that anger, All those corrupt words, all of those things have been buried in the tomb from which Jesus arose. If your faith is in Christ, then all of those things died with Christ. Those things that you did this morning, that you committed yesterday, that you're going to commit tomorrow, they were buried with Christ. You may be tempted to excuse your sin. If your conscience was pricked at all during this, you may be tempted to excuse it. No, but I have really good reasons for getting angry. No, but, but it's not really stealing. I, I actually, it, it's, I, can, I can make it work out. You may be tempted to excuse your sin. You may be tempted to despair in your sin. That sin that still clings to you, that you can't shake. You keep going back to it, even though you hate it. You know it's wrong. You just can't stop. You might be tempted to despair in your sin. But as you face the sins that ensnare you, this is what you need to preach to yourself. I have not so learned Christ. Paul says in chapter 4, verse 20, I have not so learned Christ. I'm not going back to those things. I was dead in trespasses and sins, but I have been made alive together in Christ. This is how you put off the old man. You put off the old man by faith. 
You, you don't put off the old man. You don't put off these sins. You don't put off these false ways of living. You don't put off this return to death by working really hard, by building really good habits. Th- those things come after. But first, you put them off by faith. And so Jesus, remember this, that Jesus meets you where you are. He meets you where you are today. He doesn't meet you where you should be. And thank God for that. Right? He doesn't wait for us to get there. No, he meets you there, here, today. And that's why Jesus says, pick up your cross. Deny yourself and follow me. What is that sin that so easily ensnares you? Jesus says, I know. Pick up your cross and follow me. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how specific it gets. Father, I pray that we would repent of the things that you have revealed to us this morning, these sins against your holy name. Father, I pray that we would follow Christ, that we would by faith put on works of righteousness, that we would by faith walk in the things that you've set before us to walk in. And that in doing so, you would more and more renew us in the spirit of our minds, make us more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.